0: Uh, But our scripture reading this morning, which uh, we do well uh, to stand in honor of God's holy word, is found on page 10 of your Pew Bible, and it is Genesis 14, verses 8 through 24. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, where Shedolomarar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goan, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Marm the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Honor. These were allies of Abram. After his return from the defeat of Shadolamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mammer take their share. Here ends the reading. You may be seated.
1: Well, thank you very much for your kind welcome. It's really good to be here. I've heard bits about Vine Street, but never been here. We pray for you as a church, Third Avenue Baptist Church. We pray for you as we do other churches in the city. Uh, it's lovely to see as well some people that I recognize here, which is, which is great. Uh, my name, just to introduce myself again, my name is Greg, Greg Tarr. I'm a student at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary as I'm sure you know, students there. I've been there for nearly three years and I'm expecting to graduate in May. So I've got one semester still to go, uh, which has been, it's been great to be there, to, to learn, to grow as a Christian and as I, I hope as well, a, a future pastor. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here this morning to open God's words with you. And uh, why, why don't we take the opportunity now to pray uh, that God would speak to us through his Word, uh, and that we would have hearts that are ready uh, to hear from him. So let's pray. Father God, we come humbly before you this morning. We know that we are sinful people, that our hearts incline away from you, and that in, by our natures we uh, don't want to get to know you or spend time with you or hear from you, Uh, we go after other things. But Lord, we thank you that this morning we are gathered here in this local church and we pray, Lord, that as we are gathered here and as we are hearing from your words, we pray that, Lord, you may speak to us. Uh, We pray that we may have hearts that uh, receive your words gladly, uh, that receive it with joy and with expectation. But Lord, above all, we pray that we may have hearts that obey your words and that respond to it in the right way. Father, I pray that you would help me this morning to preach this passage faithfully. Uh, Lord, thank you that you you choose uh, sinful men and weak vessels to be heralds of your uh, great kingdom. And so, Lord, I trust that in as much as I preach faithfully this morning, that you will speak to us uh, by your spirit Uh, that you will speak your words into our hearts. Lord, we love you and pray that you would do us good this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like you to think about an unlikely victory. Uh, Maybe a sports team who you follow, they have uh, all the odds stacked against them and they're expected to lose and somehow or other they clinch victory. Uh, I was at my first uh, football game last night, football is, as you call it, and it was great. It was UofL playing UK, uh, UofL lost. Uh, I'm not gonna kind of express a preference one way or the other, but it was, it was fun to be there. And I'm sure if you're a sports fan, you can think of times when uh, the team has won against all the odds. But it's true in lots of areas and it's definitely true in military victories. And I want to talk briefly about a a very unexpected victory that that my own country, uh, England, had all the way back in 1415. You see, in 1415, the English were at war with the French. And that's something that we do almost constantly throughout history. And we're still doing in some way where there's battles at the moment over fishing in the English Channel that have resulted from Uh, the UK leaving the European Union. Uh, But then in 1415, there was the year of the Battle of Agincourt. And in this year, Henry V, the King of England, uh, led his troops out to uh, France and seek to battle the French in Agincourt. And the English were the underdogs. Uh, They had only around eight and a half thousand fighting men. The French had 15,000. And so really, the English didn't think they would win. It was a a, a victory which was completely unexpected, uh, completely against all the odds. Uh, But the English prevailed and uh, won the victory over the French. Uh, So throughout history, there have been examples of such unexpected victories uh, and we're going to see this morning in our and we've already seen in our scripture passage a, a time when an unexpected victory was won. And in this case, a representative of God that is, Abraham, was the one who achieved this great victory. And so the main idea, I think of the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, is that God's representative achieves a great victory and rescues those he loves. God's representative achieves a great victory and rescues those he loves. And we're gonna look at this in three points this morning. Uh, So if you're taking notes, you might wanna write this down. Uh, The first point is that the victory is achieved by trusting in God. The second point is that the victory is celebrated by God's people. And the third point is that the victory inspires further trust in God. So the victory is achieved by, trust, by trusting in God. The victory is celebrated by God's people. And the victory inspires further trust in God. So the first point, the victory is achieved by trusting in God. Now, as, we, uh, as Sean read the passage earlier, you might have seen in the passage that the odds are all stacked against Abram. Because in the first 13 verses of this chapter, we didn't read all of it, uh, because the first seven verses, if you've got your Bibles open, contain a whole load of names that are very, very hard to pronounce. And uh, my pronunciations of these names may be wrong. Uh, Sean's may be wrong. Uh, We may be right, I don't know, but please bear with me if uh, if I read out a name that you don't think is the right pronunciation. Uh, But Moses spends the first 13 verses of this chapter telling us how powerful these kings are. And there's one particular king, uh, Cedilema, and he seems to be the ringleader. He seems to be the the big chief, the, the king who's above all the other kings. And what's happened in, in this narrative is that the Kedilema, the, the, the big king, has managed to secure the service of a number of other kings for 12 years. Uh, he's had them serve him and do his bidding. But in year 13, they rebelled. Uh, we see that in verse 30, in verse 3. Uh, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, uh, 12 years, they had served Kedilema, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Uh, they'd have enough. They'd have enough of serving this king. And so they rebelled against their master, against the ringleader. And what happened is that one year later, Kedilema decided that that wasn't acceptable. Uh, he decided to enact punishment on these other kings. And so he sweeps through the land uh, defeating all the kings that have rebelled in the previous year. Now, if you've ever played the uh, the board game Risk, uh, you know that it's a, a map and you have uh, armies on it. And if you're winning at risk, you're sweeping through the board, conquering all the territories. And it, that's exactly what this king, K. does. In verse five, it says in the 14th year, Kedilema and the kings who were with him came and defeated uh, all these other kings. I'm not going to read all of their names. Uh, But verse seven, then they turned back and came and defeated all the country of the Amalekites. And so also the Amorites who were dwelling there. Uh, So the the king Kedilema had swept the land, conquering all these other kings, just like you would in the game of risk. And so if you're reading through uh, the book of Genesis, you get to chapter 14 and you might be thinking, well, why are we being told all of this? Uh, what's the reason for all these names of these kings that are hard to pronounce? Why, why does Moses turn our attention away from the, the small lives of, of Abraham and his, his nephew Lot? Why does he go b- into the, the large scale, into the, what's going on in, in the regional scene? Uh, why, why, why do this? Why, why is Moses telling us? Uh, we've, we've had, up to now in Genesis, very very localised stories. We've had stories of, of Abram being called by God, being told to pack up his belongings and leave and to go to the promised land. We've, we've heard stories of Abram going to Egypt, uh, pretending that his, his wife was his sister. And then we've had stories of Abram uh, separating from Lot because the land couldn't support them both. But, but now it's almost like we're zooming out. We're zooming out to see what's going on in the big picture. And it'd be like a a story that was following a a small family in in rural Kentucky. Uh, The story talking about a a family and the things they're doing. And then suddenly the story is talking about the United States and China and Russia and Japan and Europe. And suddenly we've gone to a completely different scale. And why is that? Well, I think it's because this story, these these goings-on in the wider scene, they do have an impact on the storyline of Genesis. They do have an impact on what's going on in the life of Abraham. And so they do have uh, implications for the future outworking of God's promises. Because God had promised Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the world through Abram. You see that in chapter 12. And so God's promise to reverse the curse of sin, sin that came into the world in the Garden of Eden, uh, that's what's at stake here. As we see this this big picture of what's going on with these kings, we're thinking, well, how is this going to impact God's promise to bless all the nations and to reverse the curse of sin? And so Moses clues us up. Uh, In verse 2, he mentions that one of the kings that's at war is the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom. And we know if we've read the previous chapter in Genesis that Abraham's nephew Lot had gone to dwell in Sodom. Uh, When Abraham and Lot were were struggling to to support, the, the lamb wasn't able to support them both, they went their separate ways. Abraham went one way and Lot went the other. And Lot went into this city called Sodom. And so that's why this, this big battle, this, this, this goings-on on, on the regional stage, that's why it's important for Abraham. Uh, this battle of seemingly random kings who not many of us have heard of is important for this man who's dwelling in Canaan because his nephew is at risk. And that's exactly what happened. His nephew Lot was carried off uh, with when the Sodom was, was conquered. And Abraham's not going to sit there in the land of Canaan and do nothing. Uh, he's not going to let anything bad happen to his relative. Uh, they might have had their disagreements in the past. In the previous chapter, they, they, they squabble a little bit over the land and they separate, but he's still his family member. And Abraham's going to protect his family. He's going to protect his own, both for the the welfare of his family, but also for the sake of God's promises. Abraham will put himself at risk for the good of God's people. And so I want to ask you this morning whether we have that same attitude towards the things of God. Uh, We're not going to be called to go out to war and to battle kings. But will we risk our time? Will we risk our our money, our finances? Uh, Will we risk our reputation for the blessing of others in God's family? Will we put ourselves in that dangerous place so that good can come To the family of God. And so I speak to a church here which is not my own, but I trust that you have made promises together. I saw a membership covenant there as I came in. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, will you give yourselves fully to the welfare of each other? Will you put each other's needs above your own? And like Abraham, sometimes we have to go through a big ordeal. We have to go through a lot of hardship and difficulty in order to bring good to others. And so will we do that? Uh, Will we do that as as members of a local church? Will we go out of our way to help each other? Or sometimes, I know if you're like me, we're tempted to take the easy way out. Uh, We're tempted to see a need from a brother or sister, in the church, but we think, oh, no, I've not got time to fulfill that. I've not got money to give to that needy person. And so we find the easy way out. But Abraham didn't, did he? He didn't find the easy way out. He went. He went to battle with these kings so that he could rescue his nephew, so that he could rescue God's people. And so Abraham, in this case, is an example for us to follow, doing good to the family of God, whatever the cost. That's what Abraham was like. That's what he did. But it is also the example of Jesus, isn't it? It's exactly what Jesus did when he left heaven to come to earth. Because Philippians chapter 2 tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became obedient even to death, death on the cross. Jesus was the ultimate rescuer, wasn't he, of God's people. He actually delivered us from from sin and from death. And so he is, as well as Abraham, an example for us to follow in doing good to God's people. So let's carry on with the story. We've seen in the first few verses how Abraham went to, Abraham went to, 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 to how these kings were, were fighting each other. And Abraham is, finds out, doesn't he? Uh, he finds out in verse 13, one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Marmora, the Amorite brother of Escol and of Aner, And they were allies. And what does Abram do when he finds out that Lot, his nephew, has been taken captive? Well, we'll look at verse 14. Uh, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so we're asking, aren't we, well, how are these 318 men going to fare against these big kings, this battle that's been raging in the area? How are just 318 men going to do against all of those kings? And particularly, how, how are the 318 men going to fare against this big king, kedalama Yeah, he's the one who's, who's completely wiped the floor. He's completely... Taken over all these territories like in a game of risk. He's he's gone through the whole map taking taking people out. Humanly speaking, these 318 men are dead even before they set out. There's just no hope for them, is there? 318 against a mass army. But if we think like that, then we're missing the fact that. Abraham isn't just an adversary for these kings. He's not just another guy they have to defeat and they have to wipe away. No, Abraham is God's representative. Uh, and so when these kings meet Abraham for war, they're not fighting men, but the kings are fighting God. You see, Abram certainly doesn't have the largest army and he probably doesn't even have the best weapons. But he does trust in God. And that's what gives him the victory in this battle. Uh, We don't get all the details, but but Moses tells us in verse 15, uh, Abram divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. It's an amazing victory, isn't it, that 318 men can defeat Kedilema and all these other kings that had joined with him. It's an incredible victory that one man, Abram, can muster an army, a small army, and defeat these big regional power kings. It's a great victory, an unexpected victory for Abram, but it foreshadows a much, much greater victory Because this victory that that Abraham and his men had over these these kings foreshadows a time when a representative of God will achieve a much, much bigger victory. And it foreshadows a time when a representative of God will will also achieve an unlikely victory. This time not over uh, kings that are taking over the land, but over all the powers of sin and death. And like Abraham, this new representative of God will put himself at risk in order to rescue people. He will die a cruel death on a cross. And it will look as if he's been defeated. But his death, the death of Jesus, the death of Christ, it will save those who are held captive. And like Abraham, Jesus doesn't achieve his victory by the weapons of war, but he achieves the victory by trusting God and by obedience even to the point of death. So brothers and sisters, we cannot achieve victory over sin and death on our own. We can't. We just can't. So we must place our trust, our trust and our faith in God who alone is powerful to fight. And he's already won the victory. He's already done it. He did it at the cross over 2000 years ago. He's already won this battle. So let's not be trying to save ourselves. Uh, let's not try to be our own saviour, thinking that we can defeat the powers of sin and death ourselves. We can't. We must rely on Jesus. He is our only saviour. And when we think of all the all the big powers out there, we think of, well, of sin and death, don't we? And we think of Jesus' victory over them. But but friends, there are many other dark powers in this world, are there not? Increasingly, even in this country, we're seeing the enemies of secularism. We're seeing the the tyrant of abortion, uh, the stain of of racism, and of the liberalisation of of gender. Friends, these things are not going to be defeated by the weapons of the world. They ultimately won't be defeated by, by protests and by political campaigning, good those, though those things sometimes are, but no, they won't. We must place our trust in God. Only he can defeat all that is evil in the world, and he will. He has defeated the powers of sin and death, and he will put an end to all evil and all death when Jesus comes again. So let's put our trust in God, who alone can achieve the victory. The victory, friends, is achieved by trusting God. So, our first point. So second, uh, the victory is celebrated by God's people. This will be briefer. So when Abraham gets back from defeating these kings, he's met by two very different people. Uh, one of them is the king of Sodom. If you look down at verse 17, uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. But there's another one who comes to meet him. Uh, verse 18 Melchizedek, king of Salem. And these two people could not be more different. Uh, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. And he leads Abraham in a celebration of the victory that's been achieved. Uh, he blesses Abraham. Verse 19 and says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gives Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, he gives him a tenth of everything, a tenth of all of his spoils from this war, all of the things Abram acquires, he gives away a tenth. And so we're left asking, aren't we, well, who is this Melchizedek? Who is this king of Salem? And and how great he is that Abraham gives him a tenth of his possessions. Uh, This passage doesn't tell us a huge amount about him, other than it says that he is uh, a priest of God's most high. You see that in the parentheses in verse 18. But friends, if we turn later in our Bibles... We'll find out some more. So maybe if you've got a Bible, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 7? and Let me read some of this text briefly to us. Now, Hebrews chapter 7. And let's see the author of Hebrews comment on this story that we're considering this morning. Uh, Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high gods, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And we don't have time to go through that passage in in detail, but I hope you can see how great Melchizedek is. Uh, He's in a line of priests different from the priests that are later going to come under Aaron. Uh, He's in a separate line. And the writer to the Hebrews says that he's a priest forever, in contrast to the priests that came from Aaron who would just be temporary. But the key thing to note is that the Levitical priests, the, the tribe of Levi that, that came from, from Aaron, were they, how were they limited? Well, they were limited in their inability to provide atonement for sins. Uh, they couldn't truly get rid of sins. All they could do was sacrifice animals and, and uh, give a temporary forgiveness. But they couldn't really deal with the problem of sin. And so there was a need for a better priesthood. And that's what the writers of the Hebrews, why he's telling us about Melchizedek, because Melchizedek is a better priest. And Melchizedek symbolizes a, a priesthood, an order of priests that can fully deal with the sin that separates us from God. And so once again, we're reminded of the victory that Jesus that Jesus has achieved over sin and death. Jesus is said in in Hebrews 7 and in Psalm 110 that he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so, friends, Jesus achieved victory over sin and death when he died on the cross, and and we are to celebrate that victory. Uh, The victory is celebrated by God's people, and we should celebrate that Jesus has won. I think it's no coincidence that Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. And later on in the Bible story, Jesus takes these same elements and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Uh, The bread represents his body, broken for us, and the wine represents his blood, shed for us. And so, friends, when you next take the Lord's Supper together as a church, I hope it will be a time of celebration, a time of, of rejoicing, of thanksgiving. It, it, it can and it should be partly solemn because we do need to remember our sin. We need to remember the ways in which we have rebelled against God and we have incurred his, his just anger. Our salvation was costly. God sent his only son to die for us. But primarily, it should be a happy time, a time to rejoice in the amazing, the unlikely victory that Jesus won for us. And friends, let it prompt our generous giving. Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, and that would have been a lot of stuff. All the stuff that he acquired from those kings, a tenth of it all would have been a lot. But why did he give her the way? Well, because he knew, Abram knew that the victory really wasn't his. Yes, he was the one who, who mustered the army and, and fought and used the weapons, but he knows that the victory was God's. Without God, he would not have won. And so therefore, it is fitting that it is God's priest who gets the rewards. It's fitting that Abram gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And therefore, brothers and sisters, it is fitting that we give of ourselves to the Lord's work, both financially, but also our time and our prayers and our own selves. So the victory is celebrated by God's people. And lastly, the victory inspires further trust in God's. And we see at the end of the passage how Abraham continues to trust God as now he has to deal with the king of Sodom. And we can only imagine, can't we, how the king of Sodom must have felt. Uh, His city has been attacked, it's been ransacked, all of his people have been taken off into captivity. All of his goods, his whole city has been looted. And he himself had to flee from these invading armies. And then some nobody... So nobody from Canaan has come and saved the day, and he's brought back all the people and he's brought back all the possessions. And so the king of Sodom has to kind of face up to Abraham, doesn't he? And maybe he was he was worried about Abraham's power. And so that's why in verse twenty-one he tries to cut a deal. Uh, the deal was that the king the king of Sodom would get all the people back. But Abraham can keep all the goods, all the possessions. And Abraham sees right through this. He sees exactly what the king is trying to do. He sees that the king of, of Sodom is, is trying to establish his position against Abram. To be in Abraham's debt. And he wants to be able to say, uh, verse 23, I have made Abraham rich. The king of Sodom wants to be Abram's benefactor. And Abram is happy, isn't he, with what he has. He doesn't need anything extra, even if it's rightfully his. No, Abram is trusting God for the future. He's trusting God, even if he doesn't uh, keep everything. He knows that God will provide. He knows that God's has made promises to him. Uh, and as we read on in the story, uh, we'll see that God reaffirms those promises to Abraham, uh, And so Abraham is not in any doubt that God will provide. And we notice, don't we, the contrast between the king of Sodom on the one hand and the king of Salem on the other. Uh, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, two completely different kings. Uh, one is offering worldly goods possessions, but one is offering bread and wine and blessing. And it's a choice. It was a choice for Abraham, wasn't it? What was he going to choose, Sodom or Salem? Uh, The world and its goods or God and his promises? And so, friends, which choice will we make? Will we choose the things of this world or will we choose the things of Christ, the bread and the wine and the blessing? Don't we need to reaffirm that choice every day to repledge our lives to God, to reject the things of this world and partake in the blessings that God has given us? So brothers and sisters, the great victory that Christ has achieved for us that he achieved for us on the cross. It should inspire our continued trust and dependence on him. And so as we close, I want to ask you this question. Are God's promises enough for you? Are they enough? Can you live the rest of your life satisfied with the things that God has promised you. Christian, he has promised you an eternal future. He's promised never to leave or forsake you. He's promised to work all things for your good. Or is God not enough and we need to supplement him with the things of this world? Friends, God's promises are enough. They are all we need. And so let us trust him Uh, let us depend on him. Let us continue to follow him. Reminding ourselves of the great unexpected victory that has been won for us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We are so grateful for what you have done to save us from our sins, to save us from death. Lord, I pray that your victory over the evil forces of this world, that your victory over all the evil and sin and death itself, Lord, will it inspire us? Will it help us to celebrate? And will it inspire our trust? Lord, we pray that we would be people who are marked by our trust and dependence on you. And we pray this, Lord, that you may have the glory as you continue uh, to lead us, guide us and bring us safely to our eternal home.
0: We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.